Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 18, Numbers chapter 15, continued. We're going to continue today in Numbers chapter 15. And in our last meeting, we examined one of those little small, really tiny, but critical, Hebrew words whose meaning has a lot of important implications, especially to believers. And we looked at just exactly what the Hebrew term ger, G-E-R, ger, or in plural, gerim, meant in its fullest sense. And this is because it is almost always translated into English as simply foreigner or stranger. And both of these English words give us a very incomplete, if not almost flatly wrong, idea of what a gear is in the Bible. Now the problem of it is not bad translation necessarily. The problem is that with, as with so many Hebrew words, there is no single English word or even a simple English term or phrase that can really impart to us this complex Middle Eastern and Biblical cultural conception of what a gear amounts to. And what we found is that a gear in its simplest sense means a protected foreigner with the word protected being the key. Okay. Most often in the Bible a gear is a Gentile except if the context just happens to be speaking directly about a Hebrew person. That is, a ger is a person who was born into another culture, another tribe, who has, for any number of reasons, decided to attach him or herself to a different tribe temporarily, maybe for the long term. Okay? And that new tribe has agreed to allow this attachment, to allow that ger to become part of their society. Now, this ger was governed by many customs, and, and, and he had boundaries and very well understood rules that shaped and guided their lives and their behavior as members of whatever society they now joined. And the Bible really doesn't bother to explain to us all the more general characteristics and boundaries that a, a gear must abide by, because we're kind of expected to know that already. Right? However, the Torah does give us some specifics concerning the required behavior of a protected foreigner, a gear, within Israelite society. Now, in a nutshell, a gear cannot own land, and therefore they are generally laborers for others. Or maybe they have a very specific trade craft that they make their living from. Further, they are under the protection and authority of whatever tribe or clan they have now attached themselves to. The protected stranger is to follow the clan or tribal customs and the civil laws that they're, they're also never to offend the tribal god and usually but not always they're to actively worship only that accepted tribal god or gods. 
But Gare were not slaves. Gare weren't misfits. Okay? They weren't necessarily even a lower class, but they were second-class citizens with fewer privileges in, society, in the society that they're now living in than from where they came from. Okay? If a Gare stayed long enough, perhaps he could be absorbed into his host's family, usually by marrying a clan or tribe member. And then maybe within a generation or two, that protected stranger or protected foreigner label just kind of simply no longer applied. He assimilated. Now, our interest concerns mostly what the relationship is between a Gare who comes to live with Israel. Okay? And for these particular Gerim, the Lord gives us very specific guidelines. And the first and most important is that they must abide by the Torah commands that prohibit things called negative commandments. And in most cases, they can, by choice, participate in commands that demand certain things to be done. Positive commandments. But when they choose to participate in some of the so-called positive commandments, such as the command to observe biblical feasts, they had to do it strictly according to the law of Moses. This all leads us to what I consider to be the most important question that this section of Numbers faces us with. As Gentiles who have been joined to what Paul calls true Israel or the Israel of God or the kingdom of God, are Gentile believers gare, protected strangers, among Israel and its covenants? What is our status? And that is what Numbers is trying to explain to us to a degree. And what we found was that In the New Testament, in Ephesians 2, we find that we Christians are not classified as Gerim. We are not second-class citizens of true Israel, of the kingdom of God, with the natural Israelites, call them Jews in our modern day, being the first-class citizens. Let's review that. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1460. We're just going to read a few verses, not going to read it all. We're going to read verses uh, 11, 12, and 13, and then 19 through 22. Paul says, Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles, by birth, called the uncircumcised, by those who merely because of an operation on their flesh are called the circumcised. Because at that time, you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners, gear, to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope, without God. But now, you who were once far off, have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. Skipping down to 19. So then, 
Gentiles, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer gear. On the contrary, you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's family. You have built on the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself. In union with him, the whole building is held together and it is growing into a holy temple in union with the Lord. Yes, in union with him, you yourselves are being built together into a spiritual dwelling place for God. Let me tell you something that Gershon Solomon told me last night at Shabbat. He says, you know, Tom, he said, yes, we all cannot hardly wait to have the temple. Least, of course, himself as the head of the Temple Mount Faithful. But he said, you know something? We also all know that the real issue is that God must live in us. Now, isn't that interesting? See, the Lord through Paul makes it clear that at one time Gentiles were really even further away from Israel than Ger were. You weren't even foreigners. You weren't even that good. We were nothing. At least a Ger who came to Israel was connected to Israel. But Gentiles who had not chosen to become attached to Israel as gear were completely apart, he says, from what? From the national life of Israel, and therefore, he says, apart from Israel's covenants. It's Israel's covenants that define Israel. However, through trusting Yeshua, Jesus Christ, Gentile believers have been brought near And they're now full-fledged members of the true Israel or the divine ideal of Israel as a pure and holy kingdom of God. Not as gear, but as what? First-class citizens. Now notice something that I realize many of you have heard from me on numerous occasions, but I'd like to repeat it, but maybe from a little different angle. Just as an immigrant to the USA must go through a swearing-in ceremony, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be in L.A. um, in about a month, and we'll be at Moran's USA swearing-in ceremony. He's about to become an American citizen. Okay. An immigrant must go through a swearing-in ceremony to vow allegiance. To to what? To the United States Constitution. And he must abide, he swears, by its tenets. In that same way, so must a gear, a foreigner, to Israel, vow allegiance to the Constitution of Israel. And the Constitution of Israel are the biblical covenants God made with Israel. Now, when I say Constitution of Israel, I'm not talking about this, this political constitution of the modern state 
of Israel is drawn up by men after World War II. I'm talking primarily about the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants because that's what Paul's talking about. Contained within them is the establishment of God's kingdom on earth with Israel as the core group of people who are to bring it about. He also gives us the membership requirements for his kingdom, the rules and the regulations for his kingdom, and who's eligible for membership. That's all within Israel's covenants. Now I'd like to tell you something that occurred to me recently, and you can do with it what you please. Paul constantly warns Gentiles who wish to trust Yeshua and to worship him that it's not only unnecessary to convert and become a Jew to worship Christ, but that doing so is essentially counterproductive. He usually puts it in the terms of don't put yourself under the law or don't put yourself under the terms of the law or under the regulation. And thus he advises a Gentile to not put himself under the law. Now understand that in every case of Paul talking about how Gentiles should not put themselves under the law, Paul wasn't talking about whether or not to obey the Torah commands, the issues he was always addressing was whether or not the requirement to gain membership to the body of believers, to become a disciple and worshiper of Jesus and thus become a part of the family of God, a part of the kingdom of God, was to first become a Jew, which by, nef- by definition meant accepting the law, which of course included male circumcision. That is, that obedience to the law was step one in how one gained membership to the body of, of, of believers. And in other words, to that question, is the first step to becoming a believer, obeying the law, Paul says, no. No. However, when one has been saved by means of faith, in Yeshua, obedience to the law as a proper way of behavior for one who's been saved, that's a whole nother matter. One before the other. Not one to attain the other. Do you see that? Very big difference. Okay. With all that understanding and the many ramifications of what being a gear means... Part of the reason that Paul does not want Gentiles to accept the law, as he says, to put themselves under the law, meaning to become a Jew and to start practicing traditional Judaism, is first, because that's not the means to salvation. That's not how you're saved. And second, if a Gentile does accept the law as even part of an attempt to achieve salvation then this former Gentile, who's now a Jew, has just put himself in a very strange position with God. You see, as we discussed last week, God himself has classified Israelites as Gair living with him. Even though on the one hand, Yehovah calls Israel my people, 
On the other hand, he says, but you are gear to me. You are protected foreigners to me. That is why, from the time of Moses onward, Hebrews do not ever speak of owning the promised land. God says, I own the land. You're just leaseholders and possessors. You Israelites, you're as much gare with me, says the Lord, as the foreigners who live among you are gare for you. You gare have rights, and you're under my protection, says God, but you're not on an equal footing with me, nor have you attained the status yet of first-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Yet several hundred years into the future, we find in Ephesians 2, Paul says that a Gentile who becomes a believer in Yeshua is not a gear to God, but a full-fledged citizen of the true Israel, which is defined as the spiritual kingdom of God. So the dilemma Paul is trying to explain to his mostly Gentile audience is this. A Gentile who misguided puts himself under the law thinking this is the means to salvation effectively winds up making himself a gear to God. Do you, do you follow this? Okay. That Gentile certainly gains the same status as Israel always had. A status every Jew was born into. A gear with God. But a Gentile who trusts Messiah as the only legitimate means to salvation becomes a full-fledged citizen of the kingdom of God with all the rights and privileges associated with it. In essence, a Gentile who was as nothing we're told here in Ephesians 2. You're nothing. Leapfrogs over a, a, a fleshly a non-believing Hebrew, and instantly, along with the Jews who have accepted the Messiah, becomes a first-class citizen in God's divine kingdom. And Paul asks this question. He says, Gentiles, why would you want the second-class status of a gear when you can have the first-class status of a citizen of heaven? You with me? In effect, Paul offers the same argument in other of his writings. Remember, now he's talking mainly to Gentiles. He offers the same things to the Jews. He says, hey Jews, why not accept Yeshua as your Messiah and be elevated from your current status, the legal status you were born into, as Gerim to God, to become first class citizens with God in the kingdom of God. Now understand, all of this is contained in the rules and ordinances and the covenants that God made with Israel. The ability for a Jew to have his status elevated from gear with God 
to first class citizen of the kingdom of God and for a Gentile to have his status elevated from basically nothing to a first class citizen of the kingdom of God is possible only under the terms of Israel's covenants. A Gentile only becomes a member of the kingdom of God by means of Israel's covenants of God. And of course, those covenants all speak and point to Messiah Yeshua. Now, Paul is not addressing, let me get this really squared away. Paul is not addressing about whether it's good to be obedient to the Torah, the law, or not. He addresses that issue head on in many of his other epistles where he says it is good, it is preferable for a believer to obey the Torah. Matter of fact, later on your own, go take a good long look at Romans 2. For instance, in Romans 2.13, Paul says things like, The doers of the law will attain righteousness. 14. Gentiles who do what the law requires will be held innocent. 20 through 20, 25 through 28. Those who keep the law will condemn those who do not. Hmm. See, Paul is talking about behavior and a response to God, not how you become saved. Okay. Paul is speaking not about how a Gentile becomes a member of the kingdom of God, but how one's to live his life afterward. But he also says obedience to the law, to the Torah, is the proper response for a person who gets saved by his Jewish Messiah. Well, now that we've affirmed once again why the Old Testament in general and the Torah in specific is still critically important to Christians, let's move on a little bit further in Numbers chapter 15. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. And if you have the complete Jewish Bible, page uh, 166. And we're going to start reading at uh, verse 17 and go on through to the end. <clears throat> start at verse 17 of Numbers 15. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them when you enter the land that I'm bringing you, and you eat the bread produced in the land, you're to set aside a portion of it as a gift for Adonai. Set aside from your first dough a cake as a gift. Set it aside as you would set aside a portion of the grain from your threshing floor. From your first dough, you will give Adonai a portion as a gift throughout all your generations. Now, if by mistake, you fail to observe all these mitzvot, all these commands that Adonai has spoken to Moses, yes, everything that Adonai has ordered you to do through Moses, from the day Adonai gave the order and onward throughout all your generations, then if it was done by mistake by the community and it wasn't known to them, the whole community is to offer one young bull for a burnt offering as a fragrant aroma to Adonai along with its grain and drink offerings in keeping with the rule and one male goat as a sin offering. Now the Kohen, the priest, is to make atonement for the whole community of the people of Israel and they will be forgiven. Because it was a mistake. 
And they have brought their offering, an offering made by fire to Adonai, and their sin offering before Adonai for their mistake. The whole community of the people of Israel will be forgiven. Likewise, the foreigner, the gear, staying with them. Because for all the people it was a mistake. Now if an individual sins by mistake, he's to offer a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. The priest will make atonement before Adonai for the person who makes a mistake by sinning inadvertently. He will make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. No matter whether he's a citizen of Israel or a foreigner, a gear, living with them. You're to have one law for whoever it is that does something wrong by mistake. But an individual who does something wrong intentionally, whether a citizen or a foreigner, is blaspheming Adonai. That person will be cut off from his people because he has contempt for the word of Adonai and he's disobeyed his command. That person will be cut off completely. His offense will remain with him. While the people of Israel were in the desert, they found a man gathering wood on Shabbat. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses, Aaron, and the whole congregation. And they kept him in custody because it had not yet been decided what to do with him. Then Adonai said to Moses, Why, this man must be put to death. The entire community is to stone him to death outside of the camp. So the whole community brought him outside the camp and threw stones at him until he died, as Adonai had ordered Moses. And Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, instructing them throughout all their generations to make tzitzit on the corners of their garments and put the tzitzit on each corner with a blue thread. It is to be a tzitzit for you to look at and thereby remember all of Adonai's commands and obey them so that you won't go around wherever your own heart and eyes lead you to prostitute yourselves. But it will help you remember and, re- and obey all my commands and be holy for your God. I am Adonai your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to be your God. I'm Adonai your God. This section about set aside for, uh, set a, setting aside for God some of the bread that's made after the people enter the promised land, by the way, is quite interesting and instructive. Now remember, even though we're going to struggle with which of the Torah commands we're still to obey literally and just how we're going to obey them in a practical way in our modern Western society and of course factoring in the advent of Jesus Christ, God is setting up unchangeable patterns that we're to learn and recognize and apply to our lives forever. And what is being discussed, beginning in verse 17, is that the first of the bread dough that is made regularly in every house is to go to him. And the instruction is that that batch is to be given to the priest because it's the holy portion. Now the principle, this is operating from is the principle of firstlings, or more familiar in our language, first fruits. That is, the first of everything belongs to God. Your first male child, 
firstborn. The first of your crops called Bikurim. The first of your bread dough called Hala. Now, what's interesting is that typically only farmers could participate in the most common first fruits offerings because they're the ones who grew the crops. Okay, And therefore they were the ones required to bring the offering of the first of their crops as a sacrifice. If you were making shoes, you didn't have to bring crops because you didn't grow them. Now what this new command does is to bring the ability to offer first fruit sacrifices out of the field and into every Hebrew home. Every Hebrew home baked bread. It was their staple food. And now, with the requirement of an offering of a portion of that bread dough to God, every Hebrew home could have direct participation in offering first fruits on a regular basis. And what a joy that was for them. See, this custom of offering some of the dough from the household bread baking became such a deeply ingrained custom within Israel that even after the temple was destroyed, the Talmud tells us that a woman baking bread would take a small piece of that bread dough and she'd throw it into the fire as a sort of mini-sacrifice in remembrance of this commandment. Now let me quote you, quote for you a saying of Paul. Okay, one you've heard several times from me, but maybe now you'll better understand why he chose the words that he did. In Romans 11:16 it says, "And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also." And if the root be holy, the branches are too. Huh. Paul was just using the common language of an everyday occurrence in virtually every Hebrew household in Israel as an illustration. He was referring directly to the principle of first fruits and to the law and custom of offering a bit of the bread dough, the first of it, as a sacrifice, which in turn sanctifies the remainder of the larger lump of bread dough. Well, when we get to verse 22 of Numbers 15, the entire subject suddenly changes. Here we get into this thorny area of what is called inadvertent sins, or sins by mistake. That is, somebody commits a violation of one of God's commands, but they didn't intend to. Often they didn't even know they did it. However, this section also makes a contrast between what's required of a permission who, who commits this kind of unwitting sin and what happens when a person commits an intentional sin. Often the Bible will refer to this intentional kind of sin as high-handed. And it denotes that which the Lord considers shockingly brazen and without excuse before him. Now, these two categories of sin, inadvertent and high-handed, are themselves each spoken of in two major contexts. The sin being committed by the whole community, a national sin, 
and a sin being committed by an individual, single person. Now let me here remind you that when the Torah speaks of the whole community or the whole congregation, that nine out of ten times, it's actually speaking about the leaders and elders of Israel. Not, not every common person. Now let, let that sink in for just a second. Though the selection of leaders in ancient Israel was certainly not democratically accomplished, there was an element, most definitely, of affirmation by the people that was necessary. The governmental structure of ancient Israel, though it certainly wasn't a one-man, one-vote system, nevertheless was a representative-based system similar to our concept in the American government. The leaders and elders represented the diverse interests of the various tribes, and therefore the interests of the people of each of those tribes was addressed and taken into consideration. A leader that wasn't too, po- uh, too popular didn't last very long. Now, if God held the people of Israel responsible for going along with what the leaders and elders of Israel decided to do, in other words, if the leaders and elders were representative of the will of the people, I wonder how the Lord views the citizens of America where our process of affirming leadership is a lot more in our hands than was ever imagined in biblical times how often I'd like to divorce myself from what our elected leadership has decided to allow abortion on demand to celebrate homosexuality to demand that Israel give up some of its land inheritance to achieve a inheritance to achieve a more quiet Middle East and to serve our needs for an uninterrupted supply of oil. But the fact remains that biblically I and each of you are responsible to God for those affronts towards him that our leaders that we choose commit. We can't back out of it. And such a responsibility falls under the context of the whole congregation. So understand something. The term whole congregation isn't only a religious term. Used in a purely spiritual context. It's also a national term. And theologically, it applies to us. Just as forcefully as it did to ancient Israel. Since national responsibility and subsequent national blessings and national curses is one of the Lord's fundamental principles, we find it addressed right here in Numbers 15. And the requirement for dealing with an inadvertent sin of the nation, generally meaning the nation's leadership, but also including the guilt by association of of the common citizens... Is, the sac- is that a sacrifice of atonement has to be offered when that sin becomes known and apparent. And the offering, it says, shall consist of a bull as an ola, O-L-A-H, sacrifice, accompanied by the standard mincha sacrifice, a grain offering, and also a libation offering of wine. 
Now, in addition, it says a male goat must be offered as a hat'at offering, usually rendered a sin offering, but I think more accurately it ought to be translated as a purification offering. Anyway, please notice some key words in verse 25. It says, The priest, the Kohen, shall make expiation for the whole Israelite community, and what will the result be? They shall be forgiven. Forgiveness of a type was indeed available to the ancient Israelites at the will of God. In our modern English and probably in our Western way of thinking, we would be much better off to take this statement about forgiveness to mean they may be forgiven rather than they shall be. Because the Lord set down many principles concerning his meeting out of justice and forgiveness and they all apply and they all had to be met in order for him to show mercy. For instance, repentance and contriteness always had to be present. It's not the sacrificial ritual itself that had some type of supernatural quality that forced forgiveness out of God. Rather, it was the sincere obedience to the sacrificial commandment that was at issue. Vertical retribution, which we've talked about at length, was also at work. The punishment due the nation could be pardoned if God so chose. But the guilt of the sin would remain. And the requirement for exacting divine retribution then passed on to the next generation. Now notice that in verse 26, it is made crystal clear that the forgiveness that may be afforded by God upon the Israelites applies to both Israelites and the ger, the protected foreigners who live among Israel. Well, next up, the inadvertent sins of an individual are dealt with. The individual is not required to bring an olah, a minha, sacrifice, but he or she is required to bring a hata'at, a purification offering sacrifice, though it's of lesser value than the hata'at required for the nation as a whole, as one could imagine. The individual must bring a female goat to the priest for sacrifice, and interestingly, a ger must do the same thing. If a ger sins inadvertently, he too must offer a sacrifice of atonement. Now let me remind you, though, that the sheer number of laws that a ger might be subject to inadvertently breaking were significantly fewer than for an Israelite. And this was because a ger was bound, generally, only to obey the negative, the prohibitive commandments of the law. However, since a ger also was permitted to observe some of the positive commandments if they chose, like observing the feast days, they had to do it correctly. So likely, many ger fouled up the more strict aspects of one observance or another without intending to. And then when they got informed of it, this ger was required to make the hata'at sacrifice of a she-goat. Now, the more severe requirements and consequences mentioned in this section of Numbers appears. We find in verse 30, the case of a person 
committing what is called a high-handed sin. And we find that this law applies equally to an Israelite or to a Ger. And notice that no sacrifice of atonement is prescribed for the one who acts defiantly, commits a high-handed sin against God. In other words, the person committing a high-handed sin isn't excused from a sacrifice of atonement. It's that there is no sacrifice, sacrifice of atonement available for him. Hmm. There is no mercy for him. Only divine retribution. And the punishment is in Hebrew, karet, cut off. The idea of karet is that the punishment is not usually meted out by men. That is, the guilty party isn't usually stoned or jailed or are they punished by the citizens of Israel, although it, it could, could be that case. Rather, God will now supernaturally exact his judgment. It could mean dying younger. It could mean dying childless and thereby bringing an end to a man's family line. And by the way, that was probably one of the most feared punishments in the Bible era. It could also mean being less prosperous or maybe one's health becoming poor or any number of onerous things. And the timing of just when that the effects of that punishment might take place, only the Lord knew. So the guilty party would walk around with the judgment of divine retribution sitting on his head at all times with no remedy for it. And he had no idea when that eternal shoe was going to fall. Now as one might expect, over the centuries, just what Caret cut off amounted to varied between more modern Hebrews versus the more ancient. By the time of the great Rabbi Maimonides, the Rambam, of the 12th century AD, it was held that Caret included the possible death of the soul so that the afterlife became impossible. Today, karet as practiced in Judaism is usually defined as excommunication from the synagogue or the death sentence imposed by civil authorities. In other words, lawful execution. No matter. We can get the sense that karet is very serious and is applied only in the most high-handed offensive acts against God. And we're about to get a very well-known example of a high-handed sin that has no possibility of atonement available for it. Verse 32 tells the story of a man who went out to gather wood on the Shabbat. And the man was arrested and he was brought to Moses. And apparently Moses wasn't clear on how to judge this matter. Because at the end of verse 34 it says, For it had not been specified what should be done to him. So Moses consulted God. And God gave him his answer. Execution by stoning. The man was taken outside the camp and stoned to death. Holy mackerel. I mean, what really happened here? 
What was it that this man did wrong? Why didn't know Moses know what to do with him? Why must the man be executed? Well, the first, answer, the first question to ask is what the law about the Sabbath was, and we have to look in Exodus for the answer to that. In Exodus 35, 2, it says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest for the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So the issue about gathering the firewood obviously is tied to the negative commandment, a prohibition, that a fire cannot be kindled on Sabbath. But the man was not caught kindling a fire. He didn't start a fire. He was only caught gathering the wood for a fire. This probably was the primary reason Moses didn't know exactly what to do about it. Yet, knew that the distinct possibility of a serious violation did exist. So the issue then revolves around intent. Was he merely gathering wood for another day? Did he fully intend to use the wood he gathered to start a fire on the Sabbath? Was gathering the wood work and therefore prohibited in general? Well, the rabbis found the answer to this interesting dilemma in the story of the gathering of manna. They found that the laws concerning the gathering and the use of manna was a clear analogy to the matter of gathering sticks for a fire on Shabbat. Israel was told that whatever manna they would need on the Shabbat should be gathered, cooked, and prepared when? Before the Sabbath. And they were also told that on the Sabbath they shouldn't even leave their place. In other words, they weren't to go on a journey. They weren't to go somewhere. They weren't to exert themselves to any substantial degree. So just as gathering manna on the Sabbath was prohibited, because the eating of manna that was gathered on the Sabbath was prohibited, so then gathering wood on the Sabbath is prohibited because it indicates the premeditated intention to start a fire on the Sabbath. The two actions of first gathering the wood and then kindling the fire are both required for a fire. Therefore, the two actions are inseparable, And God considered the violation of Sabbath on par with the violation of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Those two days forming the highest of the high observances of the holy days. Yet, just as we saw a few verses earlier, the punishment for a high-handed sin, such as this one, is correct. Divine retribution. So why was this man stoned to death at the hands of other men? Here we find another very interesting biblical principle. Stoning is judicial death brought about by violation of the civil law. Karet is divine punishment brought about by God due to violation of the religious law. Although, of course, from a spiritual standpoint, the civil and the religious laws are cut from the same cloth. 
the man carrying the sticks became subject to both. Thus, he was executed, stoned by the people, causing his physical death. And then afterward, he would also be cut off, caret, by God. Spiritual death, death of his soul. Okay, so what we find is that for the most high-handed sins against, the sins against God, there is a possible double whammy. First, you'll face legal judicial punishment. Then you'll face divine punishment. Here in Torah, in Numbers, we have the principle that the church has held so vital to our fundamental beliefs. There is a physical life and death, and there is a spiritual life and death. And what Christ saves us from is the spiritual death. Not the physical death that all men are subject to regardless of their status before God. Now, does this sort of double whammy still exist for the believer? Well, is correct a possibility for a believer? Well, there is certainly a strong hint that under the most severe of circumstances, something like Coret remains a possibility. Listen to Hebrews 10.26. Hebrews 10.26 says this, For if we go on sinning willfully, intentionally, not inadvertently, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. This verse in Hebrews is nothing more than a restating of the law from numbers concerning deliberate or high-handed sins. That's all it is. Now we're not going to get into a debate today whether or not this is possible for a believer to do in the first place. The wider point I wanted to make here is that the long-held concepts of deliberate versus unintentional sins and the consequences were alive and well in Christ's day and in New Testament times. And this passage in Hebrews is a direct reference to those concepts and it's clear that they apply to believers, Jew or Gentile. The final subject of this chapter is what most Bibles call fringe or tassels. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, calls it a hem. In Hebrew, the word is tzitzit. Next week, we'll complete chapter 15 by discussing tzitzit, and then we'll move on into number 16.